0: Chapter 97 I am that I am. Exodus, chapter three, verse fourteen. Ego sum qui sum, an axiom of Hermetic philosophy. Madame Blavatsky, Isis Unveiled, eighteen seventy seven, page one. Who are you? three hundred voices asked as one, while twenty swords flashed in the hands of the nearest ghosts. I am that I am, he said. Alexandre Dumas, Giuseppe Balsamo, Roman Two. I saw Belbo the next morning. "'Yesterday we sketched a splendid dime novel,' I said to him. "'But maybe if we want to make a convincing plan, we should stick closer to reality.' "'What reality?' he asked me. "'Maybe only cheap fiction gives us the true measure of reality. Maybe they've deceived us.' "'How?' making us believe that, on one hand, there is great art, which portrays typical characters in typical situations, and on the other hand you have the thriller, the romance, which portrays atypical characters in atypical situations. No true dandy, I thought, would have made love to Scarlett O'Hara, or even to Constance Bonacieux or Princess Daisy. I played with the dime novel in order to take a stroll outside of life. It comforted me, offering the unattainable. But I was wrong. Wrong? Wrong! Wrong! Proust was right. Life is represented better by bad music than by a misa solemnis Great art makes fun of us as it comforts us, because it shows us the world as the artists would like the world to be. The dime novel, however, pretends to joke, but then it shows us the world as it actually is, or at least, the world as it will become. Women are a lot more like Milady than they are like Little Nell, Fu Manchu is more real than Nathan the Wise and history is closer to what Sue narrates than to what Hegel projects. Shakespeare, Melville, Balzac, and Dostoevsky all wrote sensational fiction. What has taken place in the real world was predicted in Penny Dreadfuls. The fact is, it's easier for reality to imitate the dime novel than to imitate art. Being a Mona Lisa is hard work. Becoming the lady follows our natural tendency to choose the easy way. Diotalevi, silent until now, remarked, or our allier, for example, he finds it easier to imitate Saint-Germain than Voltaire." Yes, Belbo said, and women find Saint-Germain more interesting than Voltaire. Afterward I found this file, in which Belbo translated our discussion into fictional form, amusing himself by reconstructing the story of Saint-Germain without adding anything of his own, only a few sentences here and there to provide transitions in a furious collage of quotes, plagiarisms, borrowings, clichés. Once again, to escape the discomfort of history, Belbo wrote and re-examined life through a literary stand-in. File Name The Return of Saint-Germain For five centuries now the avenging hand of the all-powerful has driven me from deepest Asia all the way to this cold, damp land. I carry with me fear, despair, death, but no. I am the notary of the plan, even if nobody else knows of it. I have seen things far more terrible. Preparing the night of St. Bartholomew was more irksome than the thing I am now preparing to do. Oh, why do my lips curl in this satanic smile? I am that I am. If only that wretch Cagliostro had not usurped from me even this last privilege. But my triumph is near. Swappish, when I was Kelly, told me everything in the Tower of London. The secret is to become someone else. By shrewd plotting, I had Giuseppe Balsamo imprisoned in the fortress of San Leo, and I stole his secrets. Saint-Germain has vanished. Now all believe I am the Conte di Cagliostro. Midnight is struck by all the clocks of the city. What unnatural peace! This silence does not persuade me. A beautiful evening, though cold. The high moon casts an icy glow over the impenetrable alleys of old Paris. It is ten o'clock. The spire of the Abbey of the Blackfriars has just told eight, slowly. The wind with mournful creaks moves the iron weathercocks on the desolate expanse of rooftops. A thick blanket of clouds covers the sky. Skipper, are we turning back? No, we're sinking. Damnation, the Putna's going to the bottom. Jump, Seven Seas, Jim, jump! To be free of this anguish I'd give a diamond the size of a walnut. Luff the mainsail, take the tiller, the tagallant, whatever you like, curse you, it's blowing up. Horribly I clenched the cloister of my teeth as a deathly pallor flushes my green waxen face. How did I come here, I who am the very image of revenge? The spirits of hell will smile with contempt at the tears of the creature whose menacing voice so often made them tremble even in the womb of their fiery abyss. Hola! Lights! How many steps did I come down to reach this den? Seven? Thirty-six? There is no stone I grazed, no step taken that did not hide a hieroglyph. When I have uncovered them all, the mystery will be revealed at last to my faithful followers. The message will be deciphered, its solution will be the key, and to the initiate, but only to the initiate, the enigma will then be revealed. Between the enigma and the deciphering of the message, the step is brief, and from it radiant, the hierogram will emerge, upon which the prayer of interrogation will be defined. Then the arcanum will be drawn aside, the veil, the Egyptian tapestry that covers the pentacle and thence to the light to announce the occult meaning of the pentacle, the cabalistic question to which only a few can reply, and to recite in a voice of thunder the impenetrable sign. Bent over it, the thirty-six invisibles will have to give the answer, the uttering of the rune whose meaning is open only to the sons of Hermes. To them let the mocking seal be given, the mask behind which is outlined the countenance they seek to bear, the mystic rebus, the sublime anagram. Sator Areppo! I shout in a voice to make a spectre tremble, and Sator Areppo appears, abandoning the wheel he grips with the clever hands of a murderer. At my command he prostrates himself. I recognize him, for I had already suspected his identity. He is Luciano, the handicapped shipping clerk, who the unknown superiors have decreed will be the executor of my evil and bloody task. Sator Areppo! I ask mockingly. Do you know what is the final answer concealed behind the sublime anagram? No, Count, the imprudent one replies. I wait to learn it from your lips. From my pale lips, infernal laughter bursts and re echoes through the ancient vaults. Fool! Only the true initiate knows he does not know it. Yes, master, the maimed clerk replies stupidly. As you wish, I am ready. We are in a squalid den in Clignancourt. This evening I must punish, first of all, you, who initiated me into the noble art of crime, who pretend to love me, and who, what is worse, believe you love me, along with the nameless enemies with whom you will spend the next weekend. Luciano, unwelcome witness of my humiliations, will lend me his arm, his one arm. Then he, too, will die. The room has a trap-door over a ditch or chamber, a subterranean passage used since time immemorial for the storage of contraband goods a place always dank because it is connected to the Paris sewers that labyrinth of crime, and the ancient walls exude unspeakable miasmas, so that when, with the help of Luciano, ever faithful in evil, I make a hole in the wall, water enters in spurts. It floods the cellar, the already rotting walls collapse, and the passage joins the sewers, and dead rats float past. The blackish surface that can be seen from above is now the vestibule to perdition, far, far off the Seine, and then the sea." A ladder hangs down, fixed to the upper edge of the trap. On this, at water level, Luciano takes his place with a knife, one hand gripping the bottom rung, the other holding the knife, the third ready to seize the victim. Now wait in silence, I say to him, and you will see. I have convinced you to destroy all men with a scar. Come with me. Be mine for ever. Let us do away with those importunate presences. I know well that you do not love them. You told me as much, but we too will remain we and the subterranean currents. Now you enter, haughty as a vestal, hoarse and numb as a witch. O vision of hell that stirs my age-old loins and grips my bosom in the clutch of desire! O splendid half-caste, instrument of my doom! With talon-like hands I rip the shirt of fine Batiste that adorns my chest, and with my nails I stripe my flesh with bleeding furrows, while a horrible burning sears my lips as cold as the scales of the serpent. A hollow roar erupts from the black pit of my soul and bursts past the cloister of my fierce teeth. I, centaur, vomited by the tartar. But I suppress my cry and approach you with a horrid smile. My beloved, my Sophia, I purr as only the secret chief of the Okrana can purr. My beloved, my Sophia, I purr as only the secret chief of the Okrana can purr. I have been waiting for you. Come, crouch with me in the shadows and wait and you laugh a hoarse, slimy laugh, savoring in advance some inheritance, loot, a manuscript of the Protocols, to sell to the Tsar. How cleverly you conceal behind that angel face your demon nature! How modestly you sheathe your body in androgynous blue jeans, and your T-shirt, diaphanous, still hides the infamous lily branded on your white flesh by the executioner of Leo. The first dolt arrives, drawn by me into the trap. I can barely make out his features within the cloak that enfolds him, but he shows me the sign of the Templars of Provence. It is swappish, the Tomar group's assassin. "'Count,' he says to me, "'the moment has come. For too many years we have wandered, scattered over the world. You have the final piece of the message. I have the one that appeared at the beginning of the great game. But this is another story. Let us join forces, and the others—' I complete his sentence. "'The others can go to hell. In the center of the room, brother, you will find a coffer.' In the coffer is what you have been seeking for centuries. Do not fear the darkness. It does not threaten, but protects us. The dolt takes a few steps, groping, a thud, a splash. He has fallen through the trap-door, but Luciano grabs him, wields the knife, the throat is quickly cut, the gurgle of blood mingles with the churning of the Thonian muck. A knock at the door. Is that you, Disraeli? Yes, answers the stranger in whom my readers will have recognized the grand master of the English group, now risen to the pomp of power, but still not satisfied. He speaks. My lord, it is useless to deny, because it is impossible to conceal, that a great part of Europe is covered with a network of these secret societies, just as the superficies of the earth is now being covered with railroads. You said that in the Commons on July 14, 1856. Nothing escapes me. Get to the point. The Baconian Jew mutters a curse. He continues, "'There are too many. The thirty-six invisibles are now three hundred and sixty. Multiply that by two. Seven hundred and twenty. Subtract the hundred and twenty years at the end of which the doors are opened, and you get six hundred, like the charge of Balaclava.' Devilish man, the secret science of numbers holds no secrets for him. "'Well?' "'We have gold, you have the map. Let us unite. Together we will be invincible.' With a hieratic gesture, I point toward the spectral coffer that he, blinded by his desire, thinks he discerns in the shadows. He steps forward, he falls. I hear the sinister flash of Luciano's blade, and in the darkness I see the death-rattle that glistens in the Englishman's silent pupil. Justice is done. I await the third, the French Rosicrucian's man, Montfaucon de Villard, ready to betray the secrets of his sect. "'I am the Comte de Gabali,' he introduces himself, the lying Ninny. "'I have only to whisper a few words, and he is impelled toward his destiny. "'He falls, and Luciano, greedy for blood, performs his task. "'You smile with me in the shadows, and you tell me you are mine, "'that your secret will be my secret. "'Deceive yourself, yes, sinister caricature of the Shekinah. "'Yes, I am your Simon. "'But wait, you still do not know the best of it. "'When you do know, you will have ceased knowing.' What to add? One by one the others enter. Padre Bresciani has informed me that, representing the German Illuminati, Babette d'Interlaken will come, the great-granddaughter of Weishaupt, the grand virgin of Helvetic Communism, who grew up amid roues, thieves, and murderers. Expert in stealing impenetrable secrets, in opening dispatches of state without breaking the seals, in administering poisons as her sect orders her. She enters then, the young Agatha, demon of crime, enfolded in a polar bear fur, her long blonde hair flowing from beneath the bold busby, her eyes haughty, sarcastic. With the usual fraud, I direct her toward her destruction. Ah, irony of language! This gift nature has given us to keep silent the secrets of our spirit. The daughter of enlightenment falls victim to darkness. I hear her spewing horrible curses, impenitent, as Luciano twists the knife three times in her heart. Déjà vu. It is the turn of Nihilus, who for a moment thought to possess both the Tsarina and the map. Filthy, lewd monk, you wanted the Antichrist? He stands before you, but you do not know him. I send him on, blind amid a thousand mystical flatteries, to the evil trap awaiting him. Luciano rips open his breast with a wound in the form of a cross, and he sinks into eternal sleep. I must overcome the ancestral distrust in the last, the elder of Zion, who claims to be a Ahasuerus, the wandering Jew, immortal like me. He is suspicious as he smiles unctuously, his beard still steeped in the blood of the tender Christian creatures he habitually slaughters in the cemetery of Prague. But I will be as clever as Rakowski, cleverer. I hint that the coffer contains not only the map but also uncut diamonds. I know the fascination uncut diamonds have for this deicide race. He approaches his destiny, dragged by his greed, and it is his own God, cruel and vengeful, that he curses as he dies, pierced like Hiram. But it is difficult for him to curse even now, because his God's name cannot be uttered. In my delusion I thought I had concluded the great work. As if struck by a gust of wind, once again the door opens and a figure appears, a livid face, numbed fingers devoutly held to the chest, a hooded gaze. He cannot conceal his identity, for he wears the black habit of his black society, a son of Loyola. Cretino, I cry, misled. He raises his hand in a hypocritical gesture of benediction. I am not I am that I am, he says to me with a smile that contains nothing human. It is true. This has always been the Jesuits' method. Sometimes they deny their own existence, and sometimes they proclaim the power of their order to intimidate the uninitiated. "'We are always other than what you think, sons of Belial,' that seducer of sovereigns says now. "'But you, O Saint-Germain!' "'How do you know who I really am?' I ask, alarmed. He sneers. "'We met in other times, when you tried to pull me away from the deathbed of Postel, when, under the name of Abbé d'Herblay, I led you to end one of your incarnations in the heart of the Bastille. Oh, how I still feel on my face the iron mask to which the Society with Colbert's help had sentenced me!' We met when I spied on your secret talks with Dolbach and Condorcet. Rodin, I exclaimed, thunderstruck. Yes, Rodin, the secret general of the Jesuits. Rodin, whom you will not trick into falling through the trapdoor as you did with the others. Know this, O Saint-Germain, there is no crime, no evil machination that we did not invent before you to the greater glory of that God of ours who justifies the means.' How many crowned heads have we made tumble into the night that has no morning, or into snares more subtle, to achieve dominion over the world? And now, when we are within sight of the goal, you would prevent us from laying our rapacious hands on the secret that for five centuries has moved the history of the world? Rodin, speaking in this way, becomes fearsome. All the bloodthirsty ambition, all the execrable sacrilege that had smoldered in the breasts of the Renaissance popes, now appears on the brow of this son of Loyola. I see clearly. An insatiable thirst for power stirs his impure blood, a burning sweat soaks him, a nauseating vapor spreads around him. How to strike this last enemy? To my aid comes an unexpected intuition, an intuition that can come only to one from whom the human soul for centuries has kept no inviolable secret place. "'Look at me,' I say. "'I, too, am a tiger.' With one move I thrust you into the middle of the room, I rip from you your T-shirt, I tear the belt of the skin-tight armor that conceals the charms of your amber belly. Now, in the pale light of the moon that seeps through the half-open door, you stand erect, more beautiful than the serpent that seduced Adam, haughty and lascivious, virgin and prostitute, clad only in your carnal power because a naked woman is an armed woman. The Egyptian cloth descends over your thick hair, so black it seems blue. Your breast throbs beneath the filmy muslin. The gold ureus, arched and stubborn with emerald eyes, flashes on your head its triple tongue of ruby. And, oh, your tunic of black gauze with silver glints, your girdle embroidered in sinister rainbows with black pearls, your swelling pubis shaved so that for your lovers you are sleek as a statue, your nipples gently touched by the brush of your Malabar slave girl who has dipped it into the same carmine that bloodies your lips, inviting as a wound. Rodin is now panting. The long abstinences of a life spent in a dream of power have only prepared him all the more for enslavement to uncontrollable desire. Faced by this queen, beautiful and shameless, her eyes black as the devil's, her rounded shoulders, scented hair, white and tender skin, Rodin is seized by the possibility of unknown caresses, ineffable voluptuousness. His flesh yearns as a sylvan god yearns when gazing on a naked nymph mirrored in the water that has already doomed Narcissus. Against the light I see him stiffen, as one petrified by Medusa, sculpted by the desire of a repressed virility now at its sunset. The obsessive flame of lust surges through his body. He is like an arrow aimed at its target, a bow drawn to the breaking point. Suddenly he falls to the floor and crawls before this apparition, his hand extended like a claw to implore a sip of balm. Oh, how beautiful you are, he groans with those little vixen teeth that gleam when you part your red and swollen lips, your great emerald eyes that flash then fade, oh, demon of lust! He's not all that wrong, the wretch, as you now move your hips, sheathed in their blue denim, and thrust forward your groin to drive the pinball to its supreme folly. Vision, Rodin says, be mine, for just one instant crown with pleasure a life spent in the hard service of a jealous divinity— assuage with one lubricious embrace the eternity of flame to which your sight now plunges me. I beseech you, brush my face with your lips, you Antinia, you Mary Magdalene, whom I have desired in the presence of saints dazed in ecstasy, whom I have coveted during my hypocritical worship of virginity. O lady, fair art thou as the sun, white as the moon! Lo, I deny both God and the saints and the Roman pontiff himself— No more I deny Loyola and the criminal vow that binds me to my society. A kiss, one kiss, then let me die. On numbed knees he crawls, his habit pulled up over his loins, his hand outstretched toward unattainable happiness. Suddenly he falls back, his eyes bulging, his features convulsed, like the unnatural shocks produced by Volta's pile on the face of a corpse. A bluish foam purples his lips. From his mouth comes a strangled hissing like a hydrophobe's when it reaches its paroxysmal phase, as Charcot rightly puts it, this terrible disease, which is satyriasis the punishment of lust, impresses the same stigmata as rabid madness. It is the end. Rodin bursts into insane laughter, then crumples to the floor, lifeless, the living image of cadaveric rigor. In a single moment he went mad and died in mortal sin." I push the body toward the trap door, careful not to dirty my patent leather boots on the greasy soutane of my last enemy. There is no need for Luciano's dagger, but the assassin can no longer control his actions, his bestial compulsion to murder over and over. Laughing, he stabs a lifeless dead cadaver. Now I move with you to the trap's rim. I stroke your throat as you lean forward to enjoy the scene. I say to you, Are you pleased with your rocambole, my inaccessible love? And as you nod lasciviously and sneer, drooling into the void, I slowly tighten my fingers. What are you doing, my love? Nothing, Sophia. I am killing you. I am now Giuseppe Balsamo, and I have no further need of you. The harlot of the archons dies, drops to the water. With a thrust of his knife, Luciano seconds the verdict of my merciless hand, and I say to him, Now you can climb up again, my trusty one, my black soul. As he climbs, his back to me, I insert between his shoulder blades a thin stiletto with a triangular blade that leaves hardly a mark. Down he plunges. I close the trap-door. It is done. I abandon the sordid room as eight bodies float toward the Châtelet by conduits known only to me. I return to my small apartment in the Faubourg Saint-Honoré. I look at myself in the mirror. There, I say to myself, I am the king of the world. From my hollow spire I rule the universe.' my power makes my head spin. I am a master of energy. I am drunk with command. Alas, life's vengeance is not slow in coming. Months later, in the deepest crypt of the castle of Tomar, I, now master of the secret of the subterranean currents and lord of the six sacred places of those who had been the thirty-six invisibles, last of the last Templars and unknown superior of all unknown superiors, should win the hand of Cecilia, the androgen with eyes of ice, from whom nothing can now separate me. I have found her again after the centuries that intervened since she was stolen from me by the man with the saxophone. Now she walks on the back of the bench as on a tightrope, blue-eyed and blonde. Nor do I know what she is wearing beneath the filmy tulle that bedecks her. The chapel has been hollowed from the rock. The altar is surmounted by a canvas depicting the torments of the damned in the bowels of hell. Some hooded monks stand tenebrously at my side, but I am not disturbed. I am fascinated by the Iberian imagination. Then, oh horror, the canvas is raised, and behind it the admirable work of some Archimboldo of caves, another chapel appears, exactly like this one. There before the other altar Cecilia is kneeling, and beside her I see sweat beads my brow, my hair stands on end. Whom do I see mockingly displaying his scar?' the other, the real Giuseppe Balsamo. Someone has freed him from the dungeons of San Leo. And I? It is at this point that the oldest of the monks raises his hood, and I recognize the ghastly smile of Luciano, who, God knows how, escaped my stiletto, the sewers, the bloody mire that should have dragged his corpse to the silent depths of the ocean. He has gone over to my enemies in his rightful thirst for revenge. The monks slough off their habits. They are head to toe in armor, a flaming cross on their snow-white cloaks, the Templars of Provence. They seize me, turn me around, toward an executioner standing between two deformed assistants. I am bent over, and with a searing brand I am made the eternal prey of the jailer as the evil smile of Baphomet is impressed forever on my shoulder. Now I understand. I am to replace Balsamo at San Leo, or rather to resume the place that was assigned to me for all eternity. But they will recognize me, I tell myself, and someone will surely come to my aid, my accomplices at least. A prisoner cannot be replaced without anybody's noticing. These are no longer the days of the Iron Mask. Fool! In a flash I understand, as the executioner forces my head over a copper basin from which greenish fumes are rising. Vitriol! A cloth is placed over my eyes, my face is thrust into the devouring liquid, a piercing, unbearable pain, the skin of my cheeks shrivels, my nose, mouth, chin, a moment is all it takes. As I am pulled up again by the hair, my face is unrecognizable. Paralysis, pox, an indescribable absence of a face, a hymn to hideousness. I will go back to the dungeon like those fugitives who, to avoid recapture, had the courage to disfigure themselves. Ah! I cry, defeated, and, as the narrator says, one word escapes my shapeless lips, a sigh, an appeal. Redemption! But redemption from what, old Rocambole? You knew better than to try to be a protagonist. You have been punished, and with your own arts. You mocked the creators of illusion, and now, as you see, you write using the alibi of a machine, telling yourself you are a spectator, because you read yourself on the screen as if the words belonged to another, but you have fallen into the trap. You, too, are trying to leave footprints on the sands of time. You have dared to change the text of The Romance of the World, and The Romance of the World has taken you instead into its coils and involved you in its plot." a plot not of your making. You would have done better to remain among your islands, Seven Seas Jim, and let her believe you were dead.